to the Advancing Women in Sport podcast. Hi, I'm your host, Michelle Redfern. In this first season, not just a statistic, I'm bringing you the stories of women in sport from career start to the boardroom. Every episode is with an amazing woman from a range of different sports and a range of different positions in sport. And every episode is going to give you some actionable insights as a sports fan, as a member, as an administrator, as a leader to take action on how to close the leadership gender gap in sport. I hope you enjoy the episode. The Advancing Women in Sport podcast is recorded on the lands of the Wadawurrung, Wurundjeri and Boonwurrung people of the Kulin Nation. We pay our respects to Elders past and present, for they hold the memories, the traditions, the culture and the hopes of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples across this nation. We also pay our respects to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people listening today. Welcome back, folks. This is Michelle Redfern, your host of the Advancing Women in Sport podcast. It has been amazing to hear and to receive your feedback and the response to this first season of the Women in Sport or Advancing Women in Sport podcast. I knew that that when I thought about doing this that, you know, I was using a really powerful medium, podcasting, to get the message out um, around women in sport. What I didn't realise is... Number one, well, I think I re-realised how enjoyable it is to listen to the stories of women and the stories of people who are really trying to advocate for others in sport. And number two, of course, I've just revisited my love of of being a a professional sticky beak and asking people lots of questions. So just a a recap. So I'm going to take you back in this episode to where it all began, the launch episode. And the launch episode, we recorded live, streamed live, and I had four of the, the terrific women that I interviewed in season one as my guests. So on that night um, when we launched, night here in, in Australia where I am, Shelley Ware, Emily Mackay, Alison Dodd and Dr Hannah McDougall joined me to talk about, well as it was in, in that week, International Women's Day 2022, but we talked about really what it's going to take to include more women, particularly in leadership in sport. So I hope you enjoy the episode. But just as a recap, in this first season, you've heard from Lisa Alexander, who highlighted gender inequality, particularly at the elite coaching level. We heard from Dr. Kate O'Halloran about the impact of gendered online abuse in sports media and the importance of simply getting more diverse women into the sports media. Shelley Ware talked to us about the intersection of race and gender in sport and her perspectives as an Aboriginal woman in the Australian sports media as well as her lived experience. Emily Mackay, a young woman in sport who is leading the way in a whole bunch of different scenarios, but particularly in coaching. But she also talked about the gig economy and how women in sport are more likely to experience burnout and the reasons why, and importantly, what we need to pay attention to. Tam Harding talked to us about you know the motherhood penalty in sport, the really gendered assumptions about mothers uh, and, and particularly female parents uh, in sport. Alison Dodd gave us a great interview about why sport and business is a really great combination for women and the fact that, you know, she really had an awakening as the first woman president of her cricket club about how much of a role model she was, not just for the Little East, but also for older women in sport or women who are um, you know, have been around sport for a long, long time. The professor, Professor Emma Sherry, talked to us about the uneven playing field for executive women in sport and in her experience how as a 
and executive woman in sport, she has had a lot of experiences that her male colleagues of similar seniority wouldn't have had to face into. And then finally, we heard from Dr. Hannah McDougall, who who gave just a joyous interview about her experience around the intersection of disability and gender in sport, but also gave us some terrific advice about how we might look at gender inequality and inclusion in sport using some different tools like mindfulness. I really hope you've enjoyed this first season. I've just loved recording it. And as I record this, I've just done my fourth interview for the next season of the Advancing Women in Sport podcast. In season two, I'm talking to people of all genders who are levelling the playing field for women and girls in sport. And in particular, we are talking about the actions, you know, that real call to action that leaders in sport, administrators both at elite level as well as at community and grassroots level, the things that you must pay attention to so that you too can harness the power of inclusion in sport and that together, as I always say, we can level the playing field and close the leadership gender gap in sport. Enjoy the replay of our launch episode and stay tuned for season two. Thanks. Well, hello, and for everyone tuning in live, welcome to the launch of the Advancing Women in Sport podcast. For those of you who don't know me, my name's Michelle Redfern, and I'm the, the founder, the owner, and the creator of the Advancing Women in Sport podcast and the business Advancing Women in Sport. Before we start, I want to pay my respects to the traditional custodians of the land that I'm on today, which is the, the Boomerang and the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. And I want to pay my respects to their elders, past and present and particularly to those elders who may be joining us today and pay my respects to all of the traditional custodians of the oldest living culture in the world, something that makes me a very proud Australian to think that we we have these people who've been around for over 65,000 years looking after this country and, of course, figuring so prominently in sport, on the field, on the court uh, and in all sorts of other places. We have much to learn from First Nations people, so thank you for all of you who, who are joining joining us. So what are we going to talk about today? Well, we're going to talk about the fact that, well, I'm going to ask a lot of questions. I always say to, to clients of mine that if you want to get really serious about gender equality in your workplace, whether that's in a sporting workplace or in a business workplace, you've got to think like a two-year-old. Now, if you've ever had a two-year-old in your house, you'll know that they do one thing really, really well. They ask why a lot. So my question or my my challenge to each of you is to start asking why. And the first reason, first why you might be asking is why another podcast? Why why are we talking about women in sport? And well, I want to give you the reasons why. I started researching gender in sport and specifically gender equality in sport uh, some time ago, about six or seven years ago, because I had this this wild theory as I completed my MBA. So it actually is quite a long time ago. As I completed my MBA and was thinking about taking on some doctoral studies around creating gender equal workplaces, I thought, you know what, if only business was as inclusive as sport. So my theory was if only we could get the businesses in Australia to, to model themselves on the way we do sport in Australia. And then I had a couple of other experiences uh, as, a, as a board director and as a contributor to sport. And I thought, hang on a minute, I don't know that my theory stacks up here, so I better actually go and do some research. And I started researching by simply looking around and going, well, hang on a minute. 
there aren't as many women in sport as I thought there were. And particularly when I'm when I talk about sport, I'm talking about the leadership in sport. So at those decision making tables. So I did a whole bunch of stuff, and then I I teamed up with a um, fabulous uh, woman called Sarah Hudson who helps me out with research and interviews. And we together we created a bit of a playbook to say, well, let's figure out what is actually going on in sport, particularly for non-athlete women, and let's let's give sporting administrators a playbook. So we started and we wrote a report and that was the Advancing Women in Sport report number one. And then it went into report number two because we wanted to gather the data to start off with to create awareness about the fact that we have some really big gaps in sport. And then we said, well, okay, what does that mean? And and who's what are the attitudes and the sentiments? What do people really think and feel about sport? So we researched and we did some qualitative and quantitative research with about a thousand of you from the sporting sector in Australia and came up with a whole bunch of other stuff. And then we went, well, okay, so statistics are one thing, but who who are the people, who are the women behind the statistics and what are their stories? And we said, right, so the next report, Advancing Women in Sport, report number three is going to be stories of women in sport from career start through to the boardroom because as humans and as leaders in sport, we must be curious, have empathy for and compassion for the lived experience of women in our sporting environments because they vary greatly. And then this thing happened the P word, the global pandemic, because Sarah and I were ready to rock and roll with this report. And as two years ago, uh, we started to hear about this thing that was coming down the, you know, like a freight train down down the line, we thought, well, okay, this is probably not the right time to release a report about gender equality in sport, because for, sport was quite literally, as, and it's no surprise to any of you on the call, sport was quite literally fighting for its uh, very, very life. So we held off, and then we held off, and we thought, well, you know, once this is over and done with, at the end of 2020, we'll be right, we'll get it out there. Mm, then 2021 happened. We went, oh, shoot, what are we going to do? And I thought, you know what, what am I doing a lot of? I'm learning through listening. I love podcasts and I'm this very late adopter to podcasting. What is this podcast malarkey? But I got onto it. And of course, as those of you who know me, once I get onto something, I'm pretty determined. I'll give it a red hot go. So I thought, hang on a minute. I've got these stories about women in sport. We've got this medium that is so powerful and reaches so many people. Let's do a podcast. And we reworked and re-interviewed these terrific eight women. Some of them are with me tonight to tell their stories because women are more than a statistic. We are more than numbers and data, although that's important. So before I start to talk about those terrific stories of the eight women that I've interviewed for this podcast... I wanted to actually take you back to some statistics because I've got some new stuff. Yeah, it's just come to light in the last two weeks. So I'm going to share the at the very heart of why each one of us has to pay attention to women in sport, both on and off the playing field. So let's have a look at what it's like for women in sport right now. I'm going to whip you through. It's not going to be death by PowerPoint, I promise. So of our very large sporting environment in Australia, 58% of the workers in sport are women. And so more than half are are women. However, only 11% of board chairs in sport are women. 29% of board directors in sport are women. The women are the green, in case you hadn't worked that out. I know you're all very bright people. Only 12.2% of CEOs in sport are women. Now, the very first time I presented data like this, that number was 3.7%. So we have made really big gains in 
literally six years, but 12.2% of CEOs, the people in charge of our sporting organisations, are women. 32% of executives in sport are women. Now, hang on a minute. 59% of people who aren't managers in sport are women. What's going on here? 67% of clerical and admin workers in sport are women. 60% of community workers in sport are women. So what we're seeing here is that power is very much tilted in the direction of men in sport. Now, I will make an aside here. I'm taking a, a, a gender binary, a binary view of gender, I should say. So because I don't have data, apart from a very small sample of my own, about non-binary or non-gender conforming people in sport. So for those of you who are saying, well, hang on a minute, what about trans people? What about non-binary? I don't have the data to share with you. So that's why there's a binary view of this. I hope our data sets get a lot better and we can start sharing that as well. So we've got, thinking about gender in a binary sense, we've got a very high number of men represented in the in the echelons, the highest echelons of sport, and a lot of women overrepresented in the areas where a lot of work is done. Here's the kicker. The gender pay gap that in, in sport is 27.5% overall. Now that is compared to 14% for all industries in Australia. So for, for my overseas friends on the call, I do have Australian data here, so bear with me. But the trends, I imagine, aren't that different uh, over the world. What's interesting about this data, though, is even once women ascend to executive level, they are still there's still a pay gap. At management level, there's still a pay gap. At non-management level, there's still a pay gap. Now, interestingly, at clerical level, there's a negative pay gap, and my my formatting hasn't quite come across here. But the we actually have a uh, a gender pay gap in favour of women for for clerical workers. But if you're a community worker in sport, you can experience a 54 percent gender pay gap. This is data that we just have to pay attention to, and. I, I want all of you on the call, and this data will be available. You, you actually can look at my socials today because I've published a report with all of these all of these numbers in it, and it's courtesy of the Workplace Gender Equality Agency. Um, so I want you to pay attention to this report and think about what those numbers might look like in your workplace, in your sporting environment. So today we're launching this podcast and we're launching it or in the month of International Women's Day because, well, for a whole range of reasons. Number one, because it was actually ready now and it made good sense. So it was great timing. But number two, this year's theme of International Women's Day, Break the Bias, is so in sync with the stories that these eight terrific women have told me about their lived experience in sport. Now, the stories are about good stuff, about bad stuff and about everything in between. But what underpins the stories of the women in, in this podcast series in season one, and yes, there is going to be a season two, is the fact that bias prevails in all sorts of different ways. So we're launching because we want to break the bias in sport and every single one of you watching live on the call tonight and for and today for the, for our friends in the Northern Hemisphere and for those of you who watch up on, on Catch Up Later, I want you to, yes, look at the numbers, yes, look at the statistics because they tell a story, but I want you to listen to the podcast because it tells the stories of women beyond the statistics and these women are representative of the whole gamut of intersectionalities of women that show up in the sporting arena. So that's why the podcast and that's why we're doing it now and that's why we're having a chat tonight. 
Now, if you want to look at my two reports, the existing uh, Advancing in Women in Sport reports, this is where you can get them. Pretty much just, just Google Michelle Redfern Sport and you can go to my website if you can't grab the, uh, the, the link there quick enough. But if you, if you can go there and have a read of those, well, number one, you'll see the, uh, the, the first report, you'll see just how far we have come because that contains that data where we have very low numbers of, of CEOs. But have a look, then listen to the podcast and away we go. So... I guess what I'd like to do now is to call upon my wonderful guests. And, but, but before we do that, Ben, I guess what I want to do is pop something else in for, for our viewers to, uh, to, to have a look at. So Ben, away we go. And then we're going to bring our, our guests in. Michelle is really authentic. She's true to herself and she's using that passion and authenticity to really try and drive some positive change both within Australia but uh, obviously internationally as well. She certainly rolled up the sleeves and got involved in everything and anything that it took to try and assist us. She'll be fully committed and a great ally if you're genuine. It's equally important to have uh, you know, men and women in that conversation so that we can have a balanced view of, of whatever the, the topic or issues that, that are being discussed. Michelle, creates an environment where you can confront some of those hard truths. Michelle doesn't suffer fools easily. She'll see through any tokenism that might be out there. When you first commence the journey, there's always trials and tribulations, but the long-term goal is, is certainly worth it. Michelle's able to surface some of those things and create an opportunity for us to get more women in, in leadership roles within our sport. As you heard there were Jason Reddick from the Australian rules football industry and, and the broader sporting industry now. Jason's now with, with RecLink and Adam Bishop, who's with Athletics Australia. And the reason I've shared those very nice words that they've said about me, which was lovely, including the fact that I don't suffer fools gladly, is because this is not a women's problem. This is, this is not just a women's job to fix. And so often the burden of inclusion is placed on those who are excluded. So men have to come on the journey. You hold power. Then, you know, those, those statistics are evidence. Men hold power. I want you to do something about it. And I, I want to be that person along with a whole bunch of other people that can help you do that. It's time to get shit done. Excuse me for the expletive, but it is time to get shit done and start getting some of these terrific women in charge around decision-making tables and helping us to create sustainable, enduring, flourishing, amazing sporting environments where every can reach their full potential. So with me now, I have four of the women who've given me an enormously generous amount of their time and their experiences. And I'm going to ask each of one of them as they as they bring them in to have a chat to introduce themselves. So, but I'll do the honours first. Shelley Ware, Alison Dodd, Hannah McDougall and Emily McKee. And we have a whole range of sports um, and sectors in sport represented with these women. But let's let's talk about break the bias because each one of you, and I know because I've had these conversations with you, each one of you have experienced your own bias, have experienced bias. It's put barriers in, in your way. And so I'm interested first to, to throw to Shelley and Emily around that bias, but also, you know, I just, we can't ignore the fact that we are still in a global pandemic and there have been, I don't want to use the word unprecedented, but I just did, of course, but women have been disproportionately affected in business, but in sport. And we know that bias by, by the pandemic, and we know that bias has played a part in that. Shelley, I'm going to throw to you first. 
what has been your experience of bias and and I guess then that, that overlay around the, the pandemic? Thank you. Thank you, Michelle, and thanks for having me here today. I would say that the biggest problem I've had, and I joke around quite a lot with this, is that I've actually been hit with the double stick in terms of double bias, one being an Aboriginal woman and the other being a woman. So for a long time in media, I've worked in AFL media I don't play sport at an elite level, but I have um, represented women and their voices in the media for the past 25 years. And 12 of that has actually been live television. So it's been very high paced, very exciting. And, and then the rest is pretty much made up of newspaper, radio, podcasts, and the general media side of everything. But within that time and over and over and over again, I would have heard high Lead people in high leadership positions tell me that Australia isn't ready to see an Aboriginal person on their televisions on a daily basis. So when I was actually on television, I should have clarified that I worked on an Indigenous network on NITV. And that was what I was told over and over again, that it was okay for me to be there because that's where Aboriginal people are supposed to be. And that I shouldn't leave that network because I should stay where I basically belong in my box. So that has been something that has been said to me over and over and over again throughout my career. But what I am pleased is that we had the Me Too movement. I was in a safe, in a very unsafe workplace for women. And so to be able to speak out in the Me Too movement and be able to say, because essentially people started listening, then you back that up with the um, Black Lives Matter movement, and then people wanted to listen even more. So through these global initiatives that have happened around the world and people listening and actually looking at themselves as human beings as well. A lot has changed, I think, for my space and for the space of many, many others. Chuck in COVID, of course, you know, the first people to go were women in media. So that that was hard too. But it also gave me time to reflect, Michelle, upon what I wanted within my own career. And I had spent a lot of time chasing and chasing and pushing and breaking down barriers and what I have seen from Me Too and the Black Lives Matter is that it's worked. They've worked. We are seeing Aboriginal people on televisions every day. And I, I've just taken away from that of being an old duck now is that I'm really proud to be a part of that. I'm proud to have been a part of breaking down the barriers and, and laying the tracks for these people to be able to do what they're doing. So it's, it's, it certainly has had its challenges over the years and, you know, the, the problems are, count, are countless, you know, and it's been un, unfortunate. But like I said, very proud to have been a part of breaking the bias. And I think from a timing perspective, it was good that you've reminded us that at the, just after the pandemic started was, was when George Floyd was murdered. And, and certainly that Black Lives Matter movement came into so many people's consciousness. And, you know, I think Australia is often found wanting with, with the, you know, our, our Aboriginal, our First Nations people are um, over-incarcerated, overly intervened in from social services perspective, yet we see them over-represented in sport, and, but not over-represented in, in leadership. So we're certainly see, seeing some interesting work around inclusion. It would be remiss of me not to call out Tanya Hosh and the work that she does via the AFL. But, you know, I think, Shelley, for, for you, being that that person who has been has had to both experience the bias the, and it is the double whammy. So this is the intersectional stuff. You know, you front up as a woman, as an Aboriginal woman, and now as you call yourself an old duck, please. But, you know, maybe there's age there as well. I don't know. These are the very real stories that don't get picked up in statistics, that we don't hear that, you know, what is that lived experience? So I'm glad that you have been flying that flag and, and you know, you're an inspiration to so many people. L let's flip to a person who's not quite so much of an old duck, and I'm saying that because I'm older than Shelley, so there you go. But 
What about a young duck, Emily? You're at a different career stage than than Shelley and I. So tell us about tell us about you and, and bias. Yeah, so my background is in football as well, predominantly football, uh, and I've been coaching the game for about I think it's eleven years and coming up now. And I started coaching when I was fifteen years old, so I'm twenty seven now. And you can imagine this was, I started coaching before female football was really a thing, before women were really included in sport, before we had girls' teams. And there were a few around, but it wasn't as big as what it was back then. If you think that the AFLW has only been around for, I think, maybe six, seven years now. When we're talking about bias, um, I have a story that I share in the podcast and I'll, you know, sort of summarize it. That story summarizes my experiences as a female coach in, in sport. I went back to coach at community level last year. So I have started my coaching career in community and then I coached internationally in Germany and then I'm in the NAB league now, which is under 18s, the semi-elite pathway. So yeah, jumped back into community level and uh, we had a club function and I was hanging out with the club president. I didn't know very many people and I was just sort of, you know, getting to know everyone. And I ended up having a conversation with him and a, a fellow coach of one of the senior men's teams. And Within a minute of being introduced to to this coach in particular, he then went straight into telling me about, you know, how to coach, the fact that I should go and shadow the senior head coach um, because he's the best coach that, you know, this this coach had ever seen. And, you know, we just proceeded to tell me all about these things that he found really important about coaching, which is fine. Like, you know, I, I can see maybe why he'd like to share that. But just keeping in mind that this was literally within a, a minute of meeting me and, you know, I sat there, I was nodding my head just agreeing with what he was saying and after what felt like about 10 minutes, I go, do you know anything about me? Like he didn't bother to ask a question, didn't ask about any of my experiences and he just abruptly just was like, nah. And I was like, cool, no worries. And the president just shook his head and he's like, you need to shut up right now. And, you know, I share that story because this is – an unconscious bias that a lot of male coaches or male leaders have had within particularly the football space that I've experienced is that I've, I'm constantly being told what I need to do or what I need to learn or how I should coach in particular. And, you know, it's really affected my confidence levels in developing my own coaching style, which really how I face up in in the footy world is very different to how male coaches face up you know I I coach boys at the moment and I'm still very much about relationships and getting to know all of my players and really putting that first and it may seem like oh I'm just a that that's the way that females coach but genuinely I reckon I get the best out of my players more than anyone else and I've never been taught that and so it's funny I get told all these things, but none of it actually is really aligned with my style or, you know, yeah, how I show up in the footy world. So that's pretty much a summary of, of my history in sport, Michelle. I, I find it really fascinating. So the, the Emily is busts a whole lot of barriers. So I, I first met Emily when she pinged me an email. I think she was still in Europe at the time and said, hey, this is who I am. This is what my goal is in life. You seem to be someone who can help me get there. Can I meet with you when I get back to Australia? And I went, I've never been asked such a direct question. This is bloody awesome. And away we went. So a few years down the track. But when you talk about your, you know, we talk about authentic leadership and heart-based leadership and servant leadership and some, some other, you know, corporate babble. I don't mean to be disrespectful, but you're doing what 
two of the greats uh, in, in the AFL had to get sent to Harvard to, to learn, one of them being Nathan Buckley. And for, for those of you who've watched the Collingwood story, uh, the, the doco on Nathan Buckley's transformation as a coach, you'll see exactly what Emily was talking about. The fact that he went from being a hard a hard man to how do I embrace the relationships and the heart-led stuff. And, you know, I think the results speak for themselves. And, you know, Richmond Footy Club have also been the beneficiary of a transformation of a senior male coach in 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 line with that uh, with that philosophy so there's a lot to learn and I think the call out there is to not assume that that a young person isn't mature uh, not assume that a young person hasn't got experience and how we might learn from that young person Emily sometimes introduces me as her mentor and I introduce her as mine because she she keeps me real and, and keeps me very informed about what I need, need to be on the lookout for as well so Hannah and Alison, both of you, you are in different sports. So Han, uh, you're a much awarded Paralympian. Alison, you are the first female president of a an elite cricket club. And so, so arguably, someone could look at both of you and go, "Well, you've made it, so you must have done all this right." So, and I know that I know that you've had experiences, and I know Alison, you have one just recently. How have you navigated? So, I guess this is the the women on the call and men, but the women on the call are saying, well, that's great. All I'm hearing is about problems. How how have these women been successful? How have they identified the barriers or the bias and how have they navigated it? What would be your advice? Han, I'll, I'll throw to you first. So happy to be with you all tonight. So navigating bias, I think, is a really fascinating topic and probably one that we all might be lifelong learners in. Personally, for me, how I have navigated bias over about the past 15 years or so is I remember was going through a rehab period in my life after having two hip surgeries. In a really big nutshell, I was an elite swimmer for 10 years and got to travel the world with a swimming team, went to the the Paralympic Games, got a Paralympic medal, world records, ticked all the boxes. We traveled literally everywhere except uh, Antarctica, so that's still on the to-do list. And I got quite burnt out from following the black line from such a young age and transferred into the sport of cycling. And cycling is my heart space, my passion. I absolutely love it. However, I wasn't quite built for cycling in that the theory is when I was a little bit younger, being an amputee and doing a lot of hopping, I put down some extra bone on the head of my left femur, which is my strong leg, my Brutus, whereas my Julius Caesar, so my amputee side, he's known as, yeah, we, we refer to him as Julius Caesar. So Brutus had a little bit too much bone. And after doing eight months of conservative rehab, I had hip surgeries, was in a very dark place from being taken away from sport, my friends, connections, all of those things for so long. And so working with a sports psych, I didn't realize it at the time, but I remember vividly sitting in the Victorian Institute of Sport gym, which, you know, has all of the smells that a gym has. So sweat, uh, the wooden floorboards, and it was in winter, so it was quite cold as well. But just sitting there and she's like, okay, Han, so what are five things you can see right now? And so I'm like, oh, well, I can see a gym and I can see a light. And because I'd literally just been in the middle of telling her all of these depressive thoughts that I'd been having. 
And she's like, okay, and now what are four things that you can hear? And so I'm like, okay, well, I can hear some athletes in the pool next door and I can hear the music in the main gym, the the sound of the weights pumping, etc. cetera. Uh, and she's like, okay, and what are uh, two, three things you can feel right now? I'm like, okay, well, I can feel my clothes. And two things you can smell. I'm like, well, all of those things I listed before and one thing you can taste. I'm like, mm, just my saliva, really. And so while I didn't know it at the time, that was my first basic introduction to this now quite well-known topic of mindfulness. And building upon that and using it as a way to live life. I don't think we can be mindful all the time. We do have that autopilot for a reason, which is very, very helpful. But for my personal journey and to navigate that bias, to become aware of it, that has been a really big part of the journey and a tool that I can use and one that I will be using for the rest of my life. So if I could encourage everyone who is on this call right now to, if you can, grab a pen and paper. You can bring out your phones if you really have to, but I would love if you could bring out just a pen and paper and on a blank piece of paper, write down the word woman and then just spend literally the next 30 seconds writing down associations you have with that word. So if you can go for it now, because I've got my clock counting down, you're probably down to about 20 seconds now of writing down any words that come up that you associate with the word woman. And as you're just finishing off that exercise, you might like to keep going as we keep talking because other things may come up for you. It's interesting to find what people associate with the word. And that can change over time as we change our thoughts and our schemas, etc. But it can be a really powerful place for everyone on this call uh, to start having some conversations. So these are my biases that I have. These are my associations that I have. What are yours? So I would just recommend that as one way to start breaking down those biases. Well, there you go. There's an exercise that I'm I'm going to use probably with some of my clients. If you're on the call, look out because I think that's absolutely terrific. Being able to stop and reflect on how we walk through life is such a powerful part of learning about others. And you know, the word privilege is something that was thrown at me in a in a very pejorative way a number of years ago. And I took it in a very pejorative way. I took it as that, well, I'm not privileged because I've had to work hard for everything that I've done, yada, 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 until someone said, you want to check your privilege, Michelle. I think you you need to work out what I'm really talking about here. I went, all right, then I will. And of course I did and I went, oh crap. Okay. So I'm I'm a knob and now I need to check my privilege. And I think that that exercise is a way to not only say so, and I would say, you know, if if you look at on the screen right now, so there's the beautiful Shelly and the not quite as beautiful Michelle next door to each other of a similar age. You know, we have had, we've got many shared experiences, but I walk through life with far far fewer barriers than Shelley does simply because of the color of our skin. And an, and that's an accident of birth and that's checking your privilege. So, so what might I have automatically granted to me that Shelley doesn't or that Han doesn't because she identifies as, as disabled or so on and so forth. But I think examining what do I associate with the word woman and how does that then, you know, our mind 
mindsets form our thoughts and our feelings, which dictate our actions and our actions have consequences. And the consequences are in those graphs or those numbers that we saw earlier. So if I think woman canteen, woman washing footy jumpers, woman ferrying kids to sport, and I think man CEO, man board director, that's how it plays out. I love that exercise. Thank you, Han. Great advice. Alison, you ascended to the presidency of uh, Strathmore Cricket Club a few years back. First woman in how many years? How many? How old is the club? 53 this year. There you go. What did you navigate and how did you navigate it? Because you've been extraordinarily successful in that role and, and you've got, you know, you've got the facts and the data to back that up. But as a woman, how did you how did you do it? Alan, thanks for having me. And it's a privilege to be on the call with um, some amazing ladies tonight. How did I do it? There were times where I thought I couldn't. There were times I thought I've got no idea what I'm doing here. I came into the role as the first female president, but I also came into the role um, in a family that's got a really strong history in our club, a dad who was president, a dad who was a life member, a brother who had won club championship awards, and people expected me to be just like them. So I had two rules when I first took on the role. One was don't refer to me as the first female president because gender's got nothing to do with it. Second, judge me on my own skills and, and capability, not am I as good as my dad, am I the same as, as my brother. And I've changed my thoughts on that now and, and I did touch on that when we recorded our session, Michelle. Absolutely I tell everyone I'm the first female president and I embrace it and I love it because I use that with our junior girls that play and I say to them, you know what, I was your age. Actually, I was younger. I was three when my parents first took me to that club and as a 10 and 11-year-old, I didn't get to play cricket. In actual fact, I can't play cricket. I can play one shot in the backyard and the ball always went through the window. So I got told off for doing that as well. But, you know, I, I embrace it now for those young girls to see what sport can give you and what especially community-based sport can give you. I have had lots of bias thrown at me. And, yes, I did have one only a week or two ago that I I think it got me in a minute of anger. I posted on Michelle's LinkedIn post about questioning why some people thought it was appropriate to BYO alcohol into our club, when I say people, men. And I had a conversation with them about the issues around around that. And one of the guys turned around to my partner and said, mate, can you just take her home and make her happy? And he said that as I walked out the door, but I tell you what, I turned on my heels pretty quick, smart, and I walked back in there. And these are men, middle-aged men. And I said, you know what? It's not about making me happy. It's about providing a fair space for everyone because everyone's paying full price for drinks over the bar. And I've learned how to do that over the time. I know as soon as I turned and walked back out, they'd be mouthing off, but it's about creating an environment where I'm about everyone and I'm about creating a fair, equal space. I learned very early on this, my fourth year as being president, I learned very early on not to try and fight the guys, but to bring them on the journey with me. And I tapped into their knowledge and their experience. I worked out very quickly which ones are always going to be having a mouth off. And you know what? You get that in life, whether it's sport, business, wherever, you're part of those people. Then there's the people that do want to have a bit of a chat, but they want to be heard. So I'd go and talk to them. I almost in my first year, I don't know if I should admit it, but I embraced my dumb female status. Oh, can you help me? I don't know how to do this. Can you tell me what to do? Probably not politically correct, but I tell you what, it gave them a sense of importance. It gave them a sense of belonging that I wasn't here to change their club or our club. I was here to make it better. And it's funny, those men now 
they're my biggest supporters. And and if we talk about how to navigate bias, go and get yourself a supporter or supporters, regardless of what level you're working or, or playing or coaching. And, you know, Emily, listening to your story, I'm sitting there going, uh-huh, I've been there. Yep. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. But I think to lead with heart and to lead with love, as women, we quite often, I think, get tarred with the brush. Oh, you're being overly emotional. Actually, no, I'm not. I genuinely love and I am passionate about the message that I'm driving or the people that I'm that I'm working with. And it's okay to teach the guys that our difference difference in opinion or the difference in the way we do things is okay because together we get an amazing outcome. And, you know, I, I've got some little notes here. Take men on the journey. Cliche as it sounds, we've got to take them on the on this journey because Michelle's right and the data doesn't lie. They are in those powers of position at the moment. So unless we work with that to our advantage, nothing's going to change. Create your own opportunities, have your own voice, but you are going to need those supporters. There are times that I've come home and sat on the couch and burst into tears and said to my partner, I'm not doing this anymore. I give up. And he's like, yeah, right. You'll get up tomorrow and you'll come up with another bright idea. So, but you know, it's really about, yeah, having those supporters, having those people that you can vent to, having those people that you know will have your back when you're not in that room. And I've, I've just had to, that's, what I've done for the last few years. So some very strong pieces of advice there and call to actions. Number one, bring men on the journey. And yes, uh, that that's just, we can't not. So men on the call, we want you on the journey and, and we want you to embrace your vulnerability and your courageous vulnerability and say, I don't know all the answers. And then the second part is let's celebrate our differences because unleash the power of diversity. If we're just assembling numbers, you know, different folks, all we're doing is assembling numbers. We're not actually unleashing the power of diversity. So inclusion does that. But the cheer squad, you know, having your own cheer squad. And, and so I can say that the first interview off the, you know, first cab off the rank next week is with Lisa Alexander. Now, uh, Lisa Alexander, for, for those of you who don't know Lisa, has is one of our most successful elite coaches ever in Australia. She's now in London coaching and a, a director with the London Pulse Netball Association or Netball Organisation. And in her interview... She reminded me of just how important it is when you are that person out the front. So Shelley, when when you were at the front and, and calling out the you know misogyny, when you were calling out racism, you know, you had you had to have those people around you, your cheer squad, your your yeah, your cheer squad. And Lisa reminded me of how important it is for us. Resilience just doesn't mean sticking your head above the parapet every day over and over again to, to get a whack. It means how do you top up your reserves? And part of that, your advice, Alison, is saying, who's my cheer squad? How do I get back my joie de vie and my energy and what have you from them? But also, who do I feel safe with? And I don't think we can underestimate the power of people feeling safe because when you feel safe, you're going to share the stuff that makes you great. So really great advice, Alison. Now, good segue Thank you, Alison and Han. Always unexpected but terrific advice. International Women's Day is about celebrating women. Now, I want 365 days a year to be about celebrating women because my goal is to live in a world where women as celebrated and as valued and as respected as men are. So, you know, one day a year just is, you know, I'm calling BS on it. It's not enough. However, it's a nice way to say, okay, let's make everyone in the world stop for one day and say, who the bloody hell are we going to celebrate? So back to you, ladies. 
who's a woman that you're celebrating and why? Because I really, you know, we've got to amplify women's voices. I'm going to kick off with Emily. Who are you celebrating? Which woman and why? Hadn't even thought of this question, Michelle, and I almost feel like it's been sprung upon me. But most recently, so I've joined Eastern Rangers, which is an ab league, like I mentioned before. And there's another woman that is coaching in the under-18s in the girls comp. And I know her by the name of LJ, and she used to play uh, AFLW. She is one of the best football coaches that I have seen. And uh, she's just taken on a coach developer role for the women coaches in the VAFA. She has coached at AFLW level, obviously, because she's had the experience as a player. And I now have a someone to look up to that's actually within reach to actually be mentored by. And I have never had that in my 11 years of coaching. So I'm going to be celebrating LJ from Eastern Rangers. Outstanding. Good on you, LJ. And, you know, sometimes, you know, LJ may not be even aware of the impact that she's had on you. So I'm super pleased that that you've given her that shout out. Han, what about you? Thanks, Michelle. This is getting me excited about all of these amazing women and just to be here with the rest of you too. So I am celebrating my crazy talented housemate, Britt Cox, who has just come back from her fourth Winter Olympic Games in freestyle mogul skiing it's nuts if if anybody doesn't know what this sport is it's essentially they start at the top of the mountain they have these little bumps that they then ski down they do a flip up a jump they do have some more bumps they have another jump and then they finish after a few more bumps crazy crazy stuff so not only is it her fourth games but she made uh the finals for the fourth time She's only 27. <laughs> uh, and I think for me, she's such such a wise soul and the most generous person. She is really like one of her goals is to motivate and inspire the next generation of female mogul skiers to, to help provide a role model for them because she was lacking that at her time. We've had some amazing Winter Olympic female athletes, I will say, who I know have been role models. So she's kind of taking that step into the next generation. So I think more importantly, yes, she is a crazy, amazing athlete. Just as importantly, she is she has the world's biggest heart we have a lot of deep and meaningful conversations out on our deck uh, as roommates now. We started off not really knowing each other and now kind of three and a half years later, we've gone from not knowing each other to being best friends. And I can't imagine my life without her. And we we're talking about supporters before and she's been one of my biggest supporters. She's had my back through for example, not qualifying for Tokyo last year and the recent surgery I had where I chopped some of my leg off just for for giggles. (laughs) Rehab's still going on. But she also gives the best hugs. So for all of those reasons and more, I could speak for another few hours, but I will leave it there. Britt Cox is the female and woman in sport that I am celebrating. Well, I tell you what, my wife is a mad, mad Winter Olympics fan. And at those moguls, I just look and I go, when do they go back and pick up their hips and their knees? Because holy moly, man, that's just, that's full on. So good on you, Britt. And good on you for being part of your your crew as well, Han. Shelley, who, which woman are you celebrating? So Hannah, that's her name is Lauren Moorcroft, the coach that you're talking about. So Lauren Moorcroft, LJ. 
that's who you're referring to. So my person that I'm actually celebrating is Darcy Vessio. Darcy Vessio plays AFLW for the Carlton Football Club and they became the first AFLW player to reach a 50-goal milestone for 47 AFLW games. So it was a big milestone that was actually achieved just on the weekend. So I I have to say I am a Carlton fan, but I'm also a Darcy Vessio fan. So, but I think they've been absolutely amazing this year. This year, Darcy, in a, through a lot of tears and a lot of fear, actually made a public announcement that they were non-binary and I think through the tears and the fear that they showed it created a space for other people to feel safe to come forward and it breaks my heart that we are still needing to have people cry and people have fear about saying who they truly are as a person and how they they walk this earth and I look forward to the day and the space that Darcy has created for others to come forward and not have to make a teary public announcement just but just to live and be who they are as a person so I'm very proud of they and I celebrate Darcy Vessio. What a, an absolutely terrific person to celebrate and Darcy is certainly someone that that I admire a lot and I agree Shelley I hope that there's a day when no one has to come out once or repeatedly as so many people in the rainbow community have to it's not just once it's over and over and over again. It's been very interesting to hear the evolution of football commentating uh, because we have two uh, non-binary folks in the AFLW and people are going to get it wrong from time to time, but it's been very, very helpful, I think, and useful to hear football commentators starting to refer to people by their correct pronouns. But Darcy, what a hero of mine they are too. Al, last but not least, which woman are you celebrating and why? I'm actually celebrating 10 young women. Oh, I'm so <laughs> Sorry, you know I break the rules quite often. I am celebrating my under-12 girls cricket side who won their first ever premiership last season, who created history at our cricket club. And I had the privilege of getting to go and talk to them throughout the season and giving them a bit of a, a chat and and telling them how exciting it was and that they actually didn't even understand what history they were were creating. And, and to see them on their little grand final day or grand final night, it still makes me a bit emotional. They were just out there having fun. There was no question about, am I a boy? Am I a girl? Am I playing boy sport, girl sport? I'm out there having fun and I think that's pave, that will pave the way, you know, in, in years to come. I can't wait till we don't refer to girls cricket, girls football, boy, because we don't say boys under 12s. We say the girls under 12 side. And I think to bring these girls together three years earlier, I had three little girls that wanted to play cricket. And they were the little girls that whose brothers were out there. So they got dragged along and we're like, hey, do you want to have a go? Fast forward to this season, a number of them have all played rep cricket. They've represented their associations and, and our areas. And, and again, they're just out there having a crack. And I think if there's something that we can learn from that is give them the opportunity, provide the level playing space, and girls will generally take it and run with it. And, you know, so I'm celebrating those young young girls of our club who, you know, hopefully in a few years' time will have a senior women's side and, and they can look back after 30-plus years of being at the club. Well, actually, I'm being generous. Who am I kidding? 40-plus years at our club that I've been there. They'll get to look back and say, hey, I helped. I helped those girls. And so, yeah, they're, they're my my little champions. And, and they won't know. They won't ever know the impact that they've had 
because trailblazers often don't until someone tells them further down the track. So I'm so glad that you're celebrating those young women who are setting an example for others. Hannah, I know you're curious about something. I am. What would you like to I ask? I am. Thanks, Michelle. Just really quickly. So I come from a, a disability inclusion space and in that space we use person-first language. So athlete with a disability, etc. And so Shelley, I was just really curious in the conversation we were having before, we were generally saying Aboriginal person or we say First Nations peoples. Is there a preference, do you think, within that arena for the language that we use? Because I'm a believer that language is really, really powerful. <laughs> I'm so 2020, so that's what old people do. So, but it is a really, really important question. So, thank you for asking that. With Aboriginal people, I prefer to be called Aboriginal. You will find that Aborigine is tense. A lot of people don't tend to like that because it has a lot of connotations, like derogative connotations to it. Indigenous was sort of something the government came up with and some, like my son in his generation, he doesn't mind being called Indigenous. And now we've got, now we're called First Nations, which used to be what they used to call galleries. And like they used to have a, or a government paper, we, we would be noted as First Nations peoples. So it is really, really important if you're in the company of a First Nations person or you're about to introduce them or speak to them, that you actually ask them like what their preference is because it is quite wide and it often is generational where I still prefer to be called Aboriginal and I do find that a lot of people still prefer to be called Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander but I think the government, it became too difficult to write Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander so they came up with a few options is is always my sort of way of thinking about it because I have been called a lot of things in my years so I've stuck with Aboriginal but thanks for asking. (laughs) Very, very good question and you're right Han and Shelley that language matters matters for Aboriginal people, for non-binary people, for all of us Um, and, and curiosity and empathy can't be underestimated as two powerful, powerful traits or attributes to use when you're trying to create a more inclusive sporting or business, a more inclusive environment, full stop. And being genuinely curious and respectful to say, how would you prefer to be addressed? Or for example, I did a panel a couple of weeks ago and I spelled out a very important woman who's um, Sri Lankan and she had a, a very long name. So I spelled it out phonetically and I said to her, is this the way that you pronounce your name? And can I say it out loud to practice it? And she goes, oh, that's really good. Thank you so much for asking. And you know, and I did end up fluffing it a little bit, but I said, I'm so sorry. She said, that's fine because she wanted to be asked. So I think for all of us being vulnerable enough to say, you know, how would you like that? I think it's a great question. Hey, I'm, I'm very, very conscious that as always, you know, we could talk for hours, but we, we don't, we only have a couple of minutes left. So folks, thank you so much for those of you who have commented. Many of you have asked where you can get stuff. Um, michelleredvern.com. Just go there or on my socials and everything will be there. You'll be so sick of me by the end of this year because we'll be, you'll have lots of stuff to look at. And thank you so much for the kind comments, uh, from, from our viewers who are, congratulating the panel on their questions their uh, and their responses. My call to action is, as I, I gave some advice on LinkedIn, what, what are the things I should do, Michelle, to get serious about, you know, leveling the playing field for women? Number one, get informed. Number two, get vulnerable. Number three, get started. There is no wrong place to start. So please get informed, get vulnerable, as we've talked about tonight, and get started. So folks, 
Thank you, Shelley, Alison, Han, and Emily. And of course, thank you to all of the other guests on the Advancing Women in Sport podcast whose stories you'll hear because, as we said, this, there, there are women's lived experience beyond the statistics. And when you learn that as well as the statistics, when you go beyond the statistics, together we can all close the gender gap in sport. So thanks for tuning in and, well, I'll see you on the flip side. Thank you for listening to our podcast. I hope that you can gain a lot of insights and importantly, take action wherever you may work in sport. Please, if you enjoyed this episode, leave us a rating. It really helps to spread the word. And of course, please do share this episode with your friends, with your colleagues and with your network of people in sport, because together we can close the leadership gender gap.